you have a copy of God's Word, would you please open up to the book of Acts? Now, I realize we're going backwards, or so it seems. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I started us off in the book of Acts, chapter 2, preaching uh, the first 13 verses. And then we most recently had Pastor King, and he preached the ending of Acts, chapter 2. Now we're going to move back and start again with Acts 2, verses uh, starting in verse 14, and get all of that middle portion. Uh, I I just don't want you to be uh, confused that we're moving on to chapter 3. All right, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, but you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, for certain, that God has made him both 
Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we are so amazed at what happened on that day. That day when your word was preached and 3,000 people were cut to the heart and they cried out, what do we do? And then they were brought to saving faith. Lord, we love this great text because it shows us the power that the gospel has. It gives us hope that you still bring salvation and can bring conversions like this. Lord, I pray that you would give us here today a great joy in the gospel and a great confidence that in the preaching of your word and in the going forth of your spirit, you will save sinners and will bring in your elect. Lord, we want to have confidence in that and I pray that you would increase our confidence tonight. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We've already seen that Pentecost has come. The great day has arrived. The Spirit of God has been poured out. We saw all of the events associated with that outpouring. We saw the people from all the different nations joined together. Every one of them hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. First, we saw the event itself. We saw a theophany, an appearance of God in the person of the Holy Spirit coming as wind and coming as fire. And then we saw a little bit about the significance of that great event. We saw that at Pentecost, it is about bringing us closer to the glory of God. They were filled with the Spirit of God. They saw and knew God directly. We also saw that the gospel was going to be going forward. And no earthly barrier was going to stop it. This is the new covenant age. And the gospel would be going forth. Well, now we have the first sermon of the new covenant age. And what's so special about this sermon is it's the first sermon with all of the redemptive facts now in play. What I mean is that salvation has now been accomplished. Christ has come. He has come in the flesh. He has lived. He has died. He has resurrected. He has ascended. And now he's poured out his spirit. 
And we, as the new covenant people of God, are waiting for the consummation of that salvation. But here is the first great sermon to kick off this wonderful age of the gospel. And what I want us to see is that this sermon models faithful preaching in the new covenant era. What does faithful preaching look like? Well, we look at this sermon and what do we see? It's biblical. It's rich in biblical text. We see as well that it's Christ-centered. We see that it's convicting. And it's full of confident hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also, we see that it works. Peter preaches The Spirit accompanies the Word of God and it goes forth and it pierces to the hearts of men and women from all over the world. 3,000 saved on one day, the first fruits of what we expect to see in this gospel age. So what did Peter do on that day? What did Peter do in that sermon? Well, essentially, I just want to point out two things that were done. First, he told us what the Bible says. He told us what the text says. And then secondly, he told us what we're called to do. What the Bible says, what we're called to do. We'll start with the first, what the Bible says. When we come to this sermon, what fascinates me from the beginning is we are seeing totally transformed men, are we not? From the resurrection to the ascension to Pentecost at that day, these 12 men are totally different than the 12 men we have come to know and love in the Gospels. It's not the same ragtag group of fishermen and zealots and tax collectors sort of bumbling their way, following Christ and stumbling all of the time. They're totally different. And what happened? Well, what happened is they encountered the resurrected Christ. And when they saw him in his glory, the pieces began to click together. They understood what it is that God had done. That is, the cross was not the defeat that they had presumed it to be, and they were depressed about that. No, now they saw that the cross was actually the great victory of God. And as well, when they met the resurrected Christ, what did he do? He illuminated the Old Testament scriptures for them. Luke 24, 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, we're told. So all of a sudden, they have a dramatic transformation in how they view Christ and how they view their Bible. Suddenly, the Old Testament makes sense in a profound, new, and Christological way. I imagine the apostles for the first time after they've seen the resurrected Christ. And they're going back into their Old Testament and they're reading through the books. And they're saying, what is Genesis all about? Well, it's about the creation through the word. And then they're saying, guys, it's about Jesus. He's the word of God. And then they go to the book of Exodus and they say, what is that about? Well, it's salvation through the Passover lamb. Guys, that's also about Jesus Christ. And then they go to Leviticus and they say, this is all about the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And Jesus showed us that that's all about him too. And they're doing this with every book of the Bible and it's unfolded before them. Now, we know the apostles have been spending their time very well in these 50 days between Ascension 
and Passover. They've been studying. They've been remembering Jesus' teaching. We saw that in the text this morning, that the Spirit of God would come and remind them of all that Jesus had said and done. And no doubt they've been scouring the Old Testament, making connections, deepening their knowledge. And now, Pentecost is here, and Peter gets up to preach. And what is he going to do? Well, we might imagine he's going to do us some great miracle. After all, the spirit of power is here. He's going to do something astounding. No, what he does, in a sense, is he says, brothers, open up your Bible. This morning, we're looking at the book of Joel. Open up your Bible to the Psalms. I want you to see Christ in Psalm 16. Let's look at Psalm 110. It's going to blow your mind what I have to show you about Christ in Psalm 110. You can imagine Peter's excitement. He goes right to Scripture. He unfolds Scripture and he says, see here Christ in it. Right in the biblical testimony. Well, what does the Bible say? First, Peter takes his audience to the book of Joel, chapter 2. I'll I'll reread the verses that he quotes. You can find them in verses 17 through 21 in your Bible. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, brothers, open up to Joel, and I want us to see the prophecy of the day of the Lord. You recall the day of the Lord? It's one of those great prophetic themes. It basically had two components, the day of the Lord. On the one hand, it was a time of great judgment of God. God's mighty hand would come down and it would strike fear into the hearts of the rebellious. But the second component of that day of the Lord is that it would be a day of gracious redemption. God would extend his arms. He would pull his people back to him. A banner would be set up. In Jerusalem, the nations would flock. And here particularly, Joel focuses on this. On the day of the Lord, the Spirit would be poured out. On who? Well, Joel tells us. All of God's people, young and old, rich and poor, master and servant, male and female, every single one of them would be filled and anointed by God's Holy Spirit, receiving instruction, power and knowledge and a closeness to God himself. And one of the interesting things about the Joel 2 prophecy is that what's behind it is probably the words of Moses and the hope of Moses. Do you remember so long ago in uh, the book of Numbers where you have various prophets being anointed by the Spirit and some of Uh, some of them there come to Moses and they say, Moses, you've got to stop this. There's other people prophesying and they're not you. And they assume that Moses is going to be infuriated about this. That Moses is going to stamp his feet and say, nobody gets to prophesy but me. 
But that's not what he says. In Numbers eleven twenty nine, he says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so Joel is taking that hope, he's confirming it, and he's prophesying its fulfillment at Pentecost. And then great old Peter, the fisherman, stands up, and what a great privilege. He gets to say, don't you see it? Don't you see that this is happening in our very midst? Jesus made this happen. Look at verse 22 in our text. It says, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He's saying, we know the day of the Lord has come. Just look at all of the signs that accompany the prophecies of Joel chapter 2. Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit. We can see it right in the book of Acts. And now it's here in our midst. Excuse me, the book of Joel. Now it's here in our midst. Well, Peter goes on. He has a, a, not a three-point sermon, a three-text sermon. So he moves on to Psalm 16. And I'll read these verses as well. You can find them in verses 25 through 28. He then goes on to say these words, quoted by David. I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now the first thing that comes into my mind when I read these words is they are beautiful words. The writer of these words has a beautiful and a strong hope that even if he should die, his flesh itself will not see corruption, that God's presence would not leave him, depart him in the grave. It's a remarkable hope, but there's just one kind of thorn in the issue here, which is that David couldn't have been speaking of himself. In Psalm 16, he couldn't have written this. And look at Peter's explanation in verse 29. He couldn't have written this about himself. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so David couldn't have written those words about himself. How do we know? Because his tomb is, is over there. You can go see it. If you really wanted to, you could dig it up and find his bones. So what does this mean? What well, means that the Messiah is speaking through David in Psalm 16. It means that the Psalms aren't just prophesying about Christ later on, but the Psalms written from the first person perspective, at least in Psalm 16, are Christ's words. His voice, his perspective, his testimony. One of the wonderful things about the Psalms is they, in essence, reveal the God-man for us. They show us the Messiah, his praise, his uh, delight in God the Father, his sufferings, his agonies, his humble reliance as the God-man. You see, when we see the Psalms in those ways, we see them take on a kind of Christological flavor, don't we? They come from the very mouth of of Christ. And, and Peter acknowledges this. Look at what he says in verses 30 through 31. He says, being therefore a prophet, 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He's doing something similar to what he was doing with Joel. He's saying, don't you see it? Can't you see that everything in that text applies directly to Christ? He was put to death, but he did not suffer corruption. He was raised up. They threw him in a tomb, but God the Father rose him from the dead. He confirms this again in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So just as Scripture said, the Holy One would be kept. The Holy One would not suffer in the grave. He would not be abandoned there, but he would be lifted up. For the third text that Peter gives to us, he goes to Psalm 110. If you want to see this, he quotes it in verses 34 through 35. He quotes, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, just very briefly, Psalm 110, David is speaking about these two lords. Literally, he says, uh, Jehovah said to my Adonai, you will sit at my right hand. And Peter is making kind of the same point he was making in Psalm 16. David could not there be talking about himself. Why? Because David, as great as he was, was never invited to sit at the right hand of God. He was never invited to be the, the right hand arm of the Lord himself. David never ascended to his throne in glory. But guess who just did ascend in glory? Jesus, 50 days ago. And there's witnesses to see it. The angels came down and confirmed it. Hundreds of people saw it. In each of these biblical texts, Peter is doing something marvelous. He's proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's declaring what the word of God says. And then he's saying, look at how it perfectly fits the Messiah, Jesus himself. All of his work, all of his life. He has opened up the scriptures. And what do we find in the scriptures? We find Christ himself laid out. His life, his redemptive acts. In fact, you can go through uh, Acts chapter 2 and you can see the list of those redemptive acts touched on each one of them. Christ has come in the flesh. He has lived for us. He has died upon a cross. He was buried. He was uh, resurrected in glory. He has ascended to the Father, and now He has poured out His Spirit. He reigns in glory, Peter is showing us, from the Old Testament. Blessing His people, conquering His enemies. One of the things that, that is so interesting as well about this sermon is Peter is developing what essentially becomes the, the doctrine of the church. These are the facts of the life of and death of Jesus Christ. These facts become our creed. They become our doctrine. 
They are the apostolic seed, the witness passed down from generation to generation. And Peter's point, once again, is so abundantly clear. Every single one of them came from the Old Testament. Every single one of them was prophesied, was shown in covenant, revealed in shadow and in sign. Now every single one of them is powerfully fulfilled in Christ. And it's those redemptive acts and those redemptive facts that becomes the core message of the apostles. They preach Christ. We see this in several other places in the New Testament. I'll give you a couple of examples. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance, the most important thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. We see those facts being laid out we see something similar in the opening of John's letter in 1 John. He talks about seeing Christ and hearing him and touching him and being with him through all of these moments as Christ was manifested to them. You could summarize this model of preaching Christ with the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. Peter's getting up there on the day of Pentecost and he's doing exactly that. He's not up there as a showman. He's not up there preaching his opinions. He's not up there going on and on and on about his hobby horses. He's not up there to advocate for some political movement or for some earthly king. He is not doing anything like that. But it's so simple. He's opening up the Bible. He's saying, here, look, see. Jesus is here proven to you he is the messiah and i would put it forward to you that that is the very essence of new covenant preaching it's consumed with christ and his gospel it is centered around christ and his benefits it is concentrated entirely around jesus and his ongoing ministry through his word and through his holy spirit that's the first thing and just know that that was uh, definitely the longer of the two points. The second one is shorter. <laughs> what are we called to do? Peter tells us that secondly. Christ has been preached, and now Peter aims that preaching at the heart of his hearers. Look what he says in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so the Messiah has been revealed. The Holy One of God is here. He's God's messenger and he's God's servant. The one given all power and authority. And then Peter drops it on them like a dead weight. And you killed him. Can you imagine the painful silence of that moment? The Messiah came in all of his power. And you despised him. And you hated him, he tells these Jews. You did not hear the voice of Moses or the voice of David in the Psalms or the voice of the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. You, when you saw the Messiah, you despised him. You strung him up. You stripped him. You beat him. You tortured him to death. And then you threw his body in a tomb and you wiped your hands 
of your guilt, to be done and rid with this man. Peter lays all of the responsibility of the death of Christ. He feels totally free to lay that responsibility at their feet. They have committed the most serious sin you could possibly commit. They have killed God's only son. Could you imagine a worse trial to come into the courtroom and to be told you're being convicted of killing the son of God and all of the evidence is laid out and you know you are absolutely guilty. It has been perfectly demonstrated who that man is that was put up on a cross. What would they do? It's a hopeless situation, seemingly. How could you possibly get out of a courtroom, of a trial, of a verdict like that? We just killed the Son of God. What do you do? And I think their cry reveals their hopeless estate. In verse 37, it says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart, literally stabbed through with a sword. They were pierced itself. In a moment, through the work of the Spirit, they saw their horrible guilt. They knew their estate. They knew what it is that they had done. And they knew that God had every right to despise them and to hate them and to discard them and to pour out His wrath upon them. They knew their guilt. And isn't it interesting that that flash of guilt is the very first sign, the very first inkling or trinkling of a regenerated heart. That is, right when the Spirit works, what is the first thing we see and know? I am a sinner, and I have put my Savior on a cross. My sin is strung up there with Him. He's there because of me. They see their sin, and they have no idea what to do. And praise God that Peter was there to say in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I love what he does there. He basically goes back to his first text and he says, do exactly what Joel told you to do. Call out upon the name of the Lord. When the day of the Lord comes, anyone who calls out to this Jesus will be saved. And then he goes on to echo, I think, Christ's first preaching. Repent and believe. Why? The kingdom of God is at hand. He tells them, you have seen your sins now turn away from them. You know the hideous truth of your sins. Now resolve to put them away. But not only that, turn to God. Cry out peace in the name of Jesus Christ. He's in essence telling them, go to God carrying the banner of Christ. Christ is now your white flag. And if you take that white flag to God, he will forgive you of your sins. If you come to him in the name of Christ, he will forgive you. He will cleanse you. Better than that, he will fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will anoint you, men of Judea who put Christ to death, as prophets of the Lord. 
He will fill you with his Holy Spirit and you will be his. And of course, the rest is history. 3,000 on one day who come by faith and who profess their sin and they're baptized and they join the church. And how did all of this happen? I want to make it as simple as possible. Didn't happen so much because Peter was such a great preacher. In fact, Peter didn't really have anything to do with it. It happened because the scriptures were opened, Christ was presented, and the Spirit came in power. I want us to think about the mission of Christ in simple terms. Christ has called us to preach his gospel, to take his name to the nations, that he might have disciples from all places. And I would ask you, will you pray for that? Will you pray simply for the preaching of his word? Will you pray for faithful preaching, both here in our presbytery, in our city, in our denomination, in Texas and beyond? Will you pray for faithful preaching and faithful witness that is biblical, that's clear, that's straightforward, that simply opens up the text and says, don't you see Christ? He's right here. Come and get him. Would you pray for Christ to be shown? And lastly, would you pray for the Spirit? Pentecost shows us anything is we are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. All of our preaching, all of our witness, all of our speaking, all of our tears, all of our pleading, everything we do to proclaim Christ would be useless. It would be dead on arrival if not for the Holy Spirit to come and to bring that word into the heart of sinners and to cut them to the heart. Would you pray for that? For the Spirit to come in power and to come just like he did at Pentecost. Let's pray.